coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. I think the key is, just like in running, is you have to navigate that. You have to navigate the discomfort. And how do you do that? To me, it's pretty simple. You create the space to take thoughtful action. Delighted to welcome you to the show today, where you hear some great insights from our guest, Steve Magnus. After listening to the show, be sure to check out Steve's website, thegrowthequation.com, where you can find his books and excellent content throughout. You can also support Steve on patreon.com forward slash the growth equation. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Steve Magnus, best-selling author of Peak Performance, Performance Coach, and the co-founder of The Growth Equation. Steve is a world-renowned expert on health and human performance. He is the co-author of the best-selling books, Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and The Science of Running, running being a huge passion of his. His work has appeared in Sports Illustrated, Wired, and Forbes. As a performance coach, Steve works with entrepreneurs, executives, and pro athletes, plus is a consultant for some of the top teams in US pro sport. Steve is also the co-founder of The Growth Equation with Brad Stolberg, a platform and community for the art, science, and practice of performance and well-being. No wonder we wanted to speak with Steve. We would highly recommend you check out their website, subscribe to their newsletter that addresses the art and science of success, and their Patreon account. Today we speak about real toughness and the science of extraordinary resilience, his next book. We asked Steve to shed light on the intersection of well-being, fulfillment, and peak performance from his perspective, and also his reading process, being a successful author. We unpack the issue of managing egos when individuals work together on multiple projects and how to make sure that partnership works out. Basically, a question for Kiran and I selfishly. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Steve Magnus, thanks very much for getting up this morning and spending some time with two Irish people to talk all things peak performance. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to this conversation. Where are you calling in from, Steve? Houston, Texas. So quite a ways from Ireland, but my grandmother was actually uh, born in Ireland, so I have Irish roots. That's obviously the resilient, gritty, <laughs> determined, persistent part of the family, is it? <laughs> exactly. That's all the good, the good parts. That keeps you going through runner, you know, runner's block and things like that, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And tell us, have you been back to Ireland? Have you ever visited? Yes, it's been a couple years. Gosh, it's been uh, six years or so now. Uh, but I got over there for a couple weeks and did the tour of all the major spots. And uh, it's a lovely country. You had to say it's a lovely <laughs> country now, speaking to two Irish friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we hit all the hit all the normal tourist spots, you know, made it all the way over to uh, Cork. I got to get back over there for a real, real adventure, I think. So say if we're coming over to Houston, you know, we've, we know the Texans, we know Astros, we know all these sort of teams. What's the, what are the cultural highlights? What are the things we should be going and looking at? Oh man. If you're talking culture, then the thing you have to show up for, and it's only for a couple of weeks a year, but is the rodeo because you'll just be blown away because it's all, it's like, I don't know, it's in the Texans football stadium. So you're looking at like 60,000 people 
watching random like cowboy style people wrestle you know bulls to the ground and all sorts of or like it's it's just crazy so it's the experience that is like no other so that's what i would suggest culturally just going back to what are you what are you up to at the moment what's keeping you busy yeah, so I'm actually uh, in the middle of finishing another book. So I'm in the lovely world of the book is done. But then once you get done with the book, you think you're like, okay, I wrote everything. Great. It's all over. But then you go through this like back and forth of like going over the minutiae and going through like 25 different title and subtitle combinations and covers and edits of stuff that you really don't think will make a difference but someone in publishing is so that's that's my life right now what's the most interesting part i mean you've you've written a few books so what's the what kind of stands out when you're kind of even at the start of the journey for you yeah so i love the start i love the research i love the exploration phase where you're just kind of have this idea and topic and it's not fully formed and then you you know because you're writing a book you get to go look at the research read interesting things but more importantly talk to people it's funny because when you write a book and you tell someone you you email someone or call someone and say hey like do you have 30 minutes of your time if i wasn't writing a book i'd get rejected all the time because I can say, hey, I'm writing this book with this ma major publisher. All these people doing interesting things, you know, athletes, entrepreneurs, like world-class scientists, they'll find time for you. So it's like my cheat guide to talk to interesting people is just say you're writing a book. Over the last few books, Passion Paradox, Peak Performance, was there anyone that you were particularly fond of? Was there any particular one book that you thought, this is my favorite? Yeah, that's that's a good question. That's tough. I, I think it cycles and changes with everyone. Although one of the most interesting conversations I think I had in researching was um, was for peak performance. We just happened to somehow talk to uh, a drummer named Matt Billingsley, who has now spent the last decade of his life, you know, being the drummer for Taylor Swift. And it just came across and I'm like, okay, this guy, like, you know, it was like through some random connection on the internet. And I'm like, oh man, this guy somehow follows me. What does he do? Oh, he's big time. Like, I'm going to just talk to him. I don't know about this. And it was the most fascinating conversation because I go in with these preconceived notions of like, well, what's it like to be a drummer in a like world-class band or whatever. And he spends the first like 30 minutes talking to me about his life as a essentially a strength coach which he was doing to like make money for his family before he like got his big break in the music industry and started you know he was part of another uh very successful performer's entourage before he joined uh, taylor swift so I'm sitting here and thinking I'm going into a conversation about drumming and I'm spending a, again, a good half hour, 45 minutes, like nerding out on how to, how to lift weights and do all this stuff. And then the brilliance of it and why I think it sticks is then he transitions and he's like, well, here are all these lessons I learned from lifting weights that transfer over to drumming. 
And I think those are the magic pieces that I get, I just get like that that aha that tingling sensation of like oh man it's the connection of ideas across domains where you're taking an idea from something else and apply it in a totally different area that I think is is where the secret sauce is. So whenever I get one of those moments, I'm just like, oh yeah, this is it. Pattern recognition and all that stuff. Running, right? You're obviously known for running. And then you've met all these interesting people because you said, I'm writing a book. Would you please talk to me? Okay, we'll have time. You probably have a very good understanding personally, but also from those conversations, especially with that story you just shared, as to what toughness is all about. Obviously, you're going to shed a bit more light on it when it, when it comes out and we can all read it. But, but what really is at the heart of that book and what's the core message you're trying to get across? Yeah, you know, that's that's a good question. Um, I need a very succinct answer that I haven't come up with yet. But I'll, I, I think it's this, is the heart of that book came from wrestling with this idea of toughness first in my running world. That's how I saw the lens because you have to, you have to deal with enormous amounts of pain and the quite frequent voice in your head that tells you to just stop and quit. And then translating that over to life, like I think we have we have to deal with this enormous deluge of maybe not pain always, but what I'll call discomfort. So that anxiety, that angst, that like, oh my gosh, this pressure that I feel when I'm trying to perform or this uncertainty that I have to deal with, especially in the last year and a half that everybody in the world has had to deal with of what's going on, what's life going to look like. So toughness to me is how do you navigate that discomfort? And I think for so long, we have taken an idea, especially in the, in the States, and we've said, well, the only way to be tough to navigate this discomfort is to put our head down and like bulldoze through things and hope it works. It's it's what I'd call the like beat your head against the wall method and hope the wall somehow cracks. And I think that's just, again, it's foolish. It doesn't match up with what really good performers do. It doesn't match up with what the latest science and psychology tells us. I think the key is just like in running is like you have to navigate that. You have to navigate the discomfort. And how do you do that? To me, it's pretty simple. You create the space to take thoughtful action. Now, creating that space is really hard because like when you feel discomfort, the normal response is like, oh man, I feel a little pain or anxiety. And then my world starts to spiral. In running, I call it the step in the hole moment, right? The moment it starts to hurt really bad. And then I'm looking around in the grass, in the, in the, you know, on the road for a hole to step in to take me out of the misery. We all go through that. But like, if you can create space to hold up, wait a minute, this is just like my brain screaming at me because I'm going through a like a difficult moment. It doesn't mean I have to step in a hole. It doesn't mean I have to spiral. Let's figure out how to deal with this barrage of emotions, feelings, thoughts that are coming at me and um, navigate it a little more thoughtfully. And then if you have the toughness, if you've developed that space that you're speaking of and something doesn't go right, so the performance is a bad one or things just don't go your way, you mentioned about debriefing and ruminating and having that process of it's important to do it with teammates or fellow athletes in order to look after the cortisol levels. Do you want to tell us a bit about why that's so important? Yeah, again, I think this is one of these things that we often do wrong, especially in American sports and in American business in general. 
but what happens right okay you have a you have a tough game you have a tough loss you know you you get beat when you weren't supposed to you fail at your presentation or your quarterly report or whatever it is like what happens after that is pretty simple like you feel and we know this like you feel pretty bad like it doesn't feel good to lose it doesn't feel good to get your butt kicked internally what's happening is you're having this like negative stress response you have cortisol levels, which is like your generic stress hormone. They go up, they go through the roof, especially after tough losses. That's why we feel that like sorrow, that frustration, et cetera, is driven by kind of this hormonal milieu that's going on in, inside. So what, what does it make sense to do if I'm already got this high cortisol, high stress, which we know like we can't think rationally. We're not going to learn as well. When cortisol levels are high, like we don't retain information. We don't process information as well. Does it make sense to come in there as a coach or boss or whatever and like double down on that and be like, you guys suck. Like what in the world were you doing out there? You're worthless. You're clueless out there. Whatever it is, you know, throw some cuss words, F-bombs in there. And you got you, you got the typical like American football um, strategy. But all that does is it like makes you feel worse. Right. And furthermore, it like increases cortisol, prolongs it. So you stay on that low. So you're not absorbing, you're not adapting. And then furthermore, what research clearly shows is that and there's been some fascinating work, especially in professional rugby on this, which shows like the longer that cortisol stays high, the longer you stay in what's this like stress or this threat state, the more it impacts your ability to learn from things and your ability to bounce back and perform the next time you got to show up. So from a performance standpoint, what we want to do is after a tough loss, we want to get that cortisol back down and get the kind of catab or the anabolic buildup hormones like testosterone and some connection hormones back up. And you mentioned it. Like, the, what's the best way to do it? Well, the best, the thing that we've been doing for like centuries when time suck, when things get rough and time sucks, like we go around our friends and our buddies and we shoot the shit, debrief with people who aren't threatening, like a coach or a boss or what have you. And like that helps process it. And again, research clearly shows. We go shoot the shit with our friends. We socialize after like that. That almost acts as that switch gets us out of that high stress, high threat and puts us into a more like rational build up higher testosterone uh, situation where we can actually learn, grow and perform again. And what are the other elements that would go into a coaching culture in an organization or a sporting institution where, okay, adversity challenge we know how to normative and get back to where we were what else what are the other ingredients you'd be looking for yeah that's a really good question and i think it's actually pretty simple we often complicate the crap out of athletics coaching and coaching and sport but if you start with we're dealing with human beings and relatively speaking like we all have the base the same basic psychological needs then it's not too complicated. For this, I default to a very well-studied psychological theory called self-determination theory. 
which basically posits that we have three basic psychological needs that we need to be met in order to be like healthy, happy, motivated human beings, which is what I want in a team. So what what are they? Pretty simple. I need to feel like I belong, right? That I'm part of this group, that I'm not ostracized, that I have a community and connection with people um, who are pursuing the same thing. So that kind of team bond, team culture thing we talk about. The other one is competency. So I need to feel like I'm making progress. I need to feel like on this team, in this program, like I am being given the instruction leeway ability to get better at whatever it is I'm doing. That Notice I said get better at. I didn't say get be the best on the team or the best in the league or the best in the world. It's quite simply, I need to be able to get better, to make progress. And then the final one there is autonomy, which means I need to feel like I have some semblance of control, like I have input into the, you know, into the journey and into the path. And again, I didn't say I need to have full control. I need to have some semblance of control. And I think in sport, we get this horribly, horribly wrong because what do we normally do? We have this distorted power dynamic where the coach or manager or whoever's in charge essentially treats the athletes as if they are like minions who are supposed to not think, just do exactly what they tell them to do. And there's no like freedom or autonomy in there. And that works a little bit in the short term, but it it fails, especially if you start losing. I mean, it's why I think the what I'd call the dictatorial style method of coaching. Like, yeah, it works in some cases, especially if like they're highly successful because the winning kind of like allows people to withstand it. But as soon as a roadblock comes in, as soon as you're facing tough times like that, that, that heavily shifted power dynamic of having one dictator in charge, like, fails and causes people to be just horribly motivated and burnt out and all that good stuff. And then if you're thinking, so you would obviously dove very deep into this when you're doing your research, is there one organization or business or team franchise that you think of that got all of them things right? Oh man, that's a good question. You know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to say one got everything right, but one, but what you see is the ones who have done it for a really long time have these characteristics. What comes to mind to me is the San Antonio Spurs, the NBA team. And they have done a fantastic job for years of creating culture that supports and gives these three things, right? Their head coach, Greg Popovich, is famous for like taking time to cultivate a sense of belonging and um, a sense of like this team camaraderie beyond just the basketball, you know, game. Like he teaches them about life. He has, you know, these elaborate dinners where he goes off on his passion of like wine and food. I think that is fantastic, you know, and sticking in basketball. If we go over to the um, 
the Golden State Warriors and, and Steve Kerr, their head coach, for example, there was a moment a couple years ago when they were in a championship run that I think exemplified this perfectly, which is, you know, for one game, the head coach, Steve Kerr, thought like, man, like we're winning a lot. They had such a huge lead in the standings. They were playing great. But it was like, man, our motivation is kind of lacking a little bit, like something's a little off. So he didn't like yell at his players and say, like, what's wrong with you? Blah, blah, blah. Instead, for a game, like he stepped back and he said, you know what, guys, you know what you're doing. Like, you're going to call the plays. You're going to be the person in charge in the huddle. Like, I'm just going to stand here and observe and watch. And like literally the players on the team like took control and, you know, for one game called all the plays, like ran the huddle, ran the practice, all that stuff. Now, is that going to be effective if you do that every day? No, but like for that one game, what does that do? It sends a message that like, hey, like you have a voice. This is your team as well. Like I trust you to to handle these things, even if I'm not there. Like that sends a very powerful message of not only belonging, but like autonomy and freedom and all that good stuff. I'd love to dig into the growth equation, Steve. The two of us really love what it looks like every everything about it and what really was stood out when we were doing a little bit of research as to the background of it as well is early on in the website you kind of put words like fulfillment peak performance and well-being together it's kind of a world we try to work in as well here in ireland where do they intersect for you what ties those three words together oh man that's a deep question a very good question. One that I, I I don't know if I have a great answer for you. You know, honestly, I think, you know, just like you guys are doing, what we saw is that often these paths are siloed and we have people talking about well-being and we have lots of experts talking about like, here's how to perform. Here's how to optimize your day and optimize your routine. And then we have like this other area talking about fulfillment and like having meaning in life and all those good things. And I think what we saw ourselves like and we still do our mission to try and do is say this isn't a one off thing. This isn't a siloed. Let's figure out how to perform better. This is like how to be happy, healthy human beings over a very long time which includes performing, which includes well-being, which includes fulfillment. And I think it's that that intersection of these ideas. And at, at the beginning, you said, you know, a word or a phrase that I think was very important, which is the pattern recognition. And I think, again, the secret sauce is in the noticing, the combining, the intersecting of these ideas that are really closely related, but often separated so that we never think about them in full. And building on that piece, in terms of the intersection, assessing yourself through introspection, how important is that to understand well-being and performance for yourself? Oh, I think it's vital. I think it's vital. And I think it's even more vital now than ever because I think society and the environment we live in pushes against introspection. Because the way I like to think about it is a couple decades ago, you know, if you were bored, you had to think. 
you had to fill that time, right? If you went on a walk, you had to think. You had to be Charles Darwin and spend your time walking around your property and like solving problems. Now, like we don't we don't have to do that. We default. We reach for our phone, we throw the the AirPods in, like listen to music, podcasts. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that stuff. Like I listen to podcasts on walks and all that stuff as well too. But I think now we have to be intentional about something that used to come natural. So that means like taking the time to step back and decide and figure out like what is my internal world sending? Like what messages are they sending? What's important to me? What are my values? Like why do I want to pursue this thing or work in this thing? And there's again, there's a lot of really good research around this stuff. And I often default to the research, but I think it's it's fascinating. You know, even the sense, and this is like the extremes of self-awareness, but if you look at the research and psychology on uh, this process called interoception, which is essentially reading your internal body signals, right? Understanding, you know, I'll use the running example, understanding when you're going on a run, whether it's pain from fatigue or pain from injury, like being able to separate that is related to interoception. If you look at the research, it's it clearly shows like the better you're at able to read your internal body and your skill and your senses and all that stuff. Um, it's linked to better health, well-being, like performance. It's even linked to like being able to be tough and knowing when to persist and when to quit. So I think self-awareness is vital. I think we've got to be intentional about it, give ourselves the time and space and um, yeah, really kind of do the deep work. Steve's going to give you a pat on the back and we're going to bracket you in with Golden State and the Spurs <laughs> and talk about ego for a minute because those those organizations are, are known for not having big egos. How, how have you managed to continuously and consistently build many ventures, projects, such as books, such as The Growth Equation, the newsletter, podcasts, with a partner, like with Brad, and even, you know, you've got Magnus and Marcus on coaching. How do you manage to manage ego, keep things like that going really well when there's two people involved? Oh, man. That's a good question. I keep saying that's a good question because it's these these aren't the normal questions I get on a podcast. So that's why I love this. So first off, I think it it comes from keeping Brad and I's or John and I's or whoever it is, like our partnership, our egos in check. And we do a very I think we do Brad and I do a very good job of that um because we hold each other accountable. Right? And we, we call it, lately we've called it, let's make sure that we don't get lost on the internet, which is this phenomenon that I, I think I see is like, when you grow your platform, you get more social media followers, all that stuff, you start to, you start to believe your own bullshit. And you start to believe that you have the answers all the time on everything, and you're always right. So... Brad and I, like, we keep each other in check. Like, we play contrarians to each other. You know, whenever one of us has something success, like, highly successful, the other's job is to, like, kind of pull back to reality. Like, I know this was really good, but, like, let's come back. 
The other thing is like just a couple of heuristics, like regardless of success or failure, if we launch a book, like launching a book is nuts. It's like a couple weeks of high dopamine pulling a slot machine like every day because you're just trying to sell as many books as you want and get as much viral social media content. It's nuts. But during that process, like we have conversations on, okay, how do we stay grounded? How do we get back to the work? Another thing that I think is really important on ego is to have something in your life that is real, has real like consequences, has real shows real progress and that you can fail at. So in Brad's life, he lifts weights. I give I give him a lot of crap for it because he just sends me videos of him like squatting and deadlifting all the time. But and, and in my life, I run, right? And you can't fool the the stopwatch. You can't fool the like amount of weight you have on the bar. You're going to fundamentally fail. I'm I'm going to run slower than I thought I would at that moment. And I think doing something like that in your life, and it doesn't have to be exercise, it can be building something or whatever it is, but something real in the world isn't the cure, but I think it helps to keep you like centered, grounded, and keeps your ego in check because I might have my book might be going crazy, but I ran slow as shit for my five mile run this morning. So like don't get too high on my horse, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. When you're going through them processes for people who are listening in, maybe who want to try and find that other piece, maybe the why the main thing outside of what their projects are, how do you keep sort of an eye on the future and what you're doing at the moment in terms of you have all these successful projects going when you achieve one or you release the book and it gets published do you just set your sights on something new are you able to say okay i need time to reflect on this to enjoy it to look after the process in the moment now or do you just go on to the next project so this is something that where again we talked about self-awareness this is knowing yourself so for me like i am what i'd call a pusher like, I want the next thing, you know, I want to write the book. And then once the book's done, I'm like, okay, like, what's the next thing? What's the next project? Like, that is me always push, 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 push. And because I know that I have to intentionally, like, think about set up my time, my day to, my, you know, almost periodize my life so that I have those moments of like space where I can reflect, where I don't have to like be on edge. And I see that as like part of the vital process. So what does that look like? Well, you know, when a book comes out, I intentionally set up the next couple weeks after that maybe first like first month launch where it's like, okay, I got to sell, sell, sell. And I'll set a date. I'll be like, okay, you know, let's say it comes out, I don't know, June 1st. I'll be like, all right. July, maybe July 4th, like our U.S. Independence Day. Um, we'll say July 4th. After that, I'm shifting. Like, I'm not going to stress about this book. I'm going to take a couple weeks, maybe go on vacation, maybe not. Maybe just like spend way more time going on walks and hikes and runs or taking my dog to the dog park or reading lots more, whatever it is. But something that gets me out of like that performance mode or that like seeking that next thing and i make sure that like that is in there because i know if it's not i'm just going to jump to the next thing and if i do that too much then eventually like it's going to come back to bite me 
what seems to be a separator from anyone we speak to on this is they read a lot. It, and the ROI on reading seems to be massive. We've even seen it from the evidence and the stories you're able to share with us today. And obviously you've written books that we've read. Um, what's your practice of reading look like? Yeah, I think reading is vital. And I'm biased because I'm an, a writer and an author. But here's, here's why I think it is. And then I'll go into my practice. It's because you're taking someone who has literally spent years researching, dissecting, etc., and you're taking their like condensed notes into a 250-page book of literally hundreds of hours of work. So it's like my cheat sheet guide to learning anything. Go read. Um, so I think it's I think you're spot on. It's vital. So my le- my reading practice is pretty simple. Is I am a I am a horribly slow reader. So that that's it. I'm not one of these guys who can just like read read and go through books quickly. I take forever. Um, So what that means is I block off periods of my day where I am focused on reading and I see it as like being a vital integral part of the day, just like, you know, doing whatever work I'm doing, whether that's writing or answering emails or going on podcasts with you guys. Um, So I, I block off time. I block off time after lunch. You know, I'm lucky. I'm a writer, a coach. I get to control my time a lot more than some, and I get it. But I block off time um, after lunch to dive deep into a book, about an hour or so. And then I block off time before bed, which is generally, again, depending on the day, depending what my wife and I are doing, um, an hour or so before bed. And those are my like, sometimes it's much more, but that's like my, my bare minimum of like, I'm going to read. And the other thing that I do is again, I'm a really slow reader is I alternate books. So what reading doesn't come naturally to me. I, I think in my entire, like, you know, grade school to high school, you know, career or, uh, education, I read like one book. You know, it, it doesn't come naturally. So in order to get around that, like what I do is I have generally two books on two different, very different subjects because I primarily like to read nonfiction. And as soon as like I start to see my attention waning and like maybe a little of like fatigue or boredom or what have you on one book, well, I just switch to the other because it's a different topic. It's a different sort of stimulation. And that keeps me engaged and keeps me going. I mean, I, I think a lot of times we have this idea that like, okay, we read one book and we've got to read it until we finish it. And that's just not true. Like there are books that I, I don't finish because, you know, either it's not that interesting anymore or I feel like I've got the gist of the idea for what I need in that moment. So I'm going to put it away and maybe I'll come back to it. Maybe I won't. But, you know, I think that is, you know, another thing. It's like whatever you can do to make sure that you're or giving yourself time to read more is better. So do it. Steve, look, practice of groundedness from a friend of yours, real toughness, some great books coming out. Obviously, we're going to share those links and and patreon that's that's an amazing thing you're doing as well and as to how you're you're keeping your your projects going and without sponsors and things like that we really admire that one last question from us across the pond steve 
what does high performance mean to someone who's been very much in that life for so long? I think that high performance is all about figuring out how to explore your potential and make progress in doing so in all areas of life. So it comes back to that performance, that fulfillment, that well-being. I think we define high performance too narrowly. I've always said like the best thing you can do to get whether it's athlete or creative to perform well is like happy, healthy human beings who are motivated perform the best. So how do we get people in that spot, in that space, and allow and give them the freedom to explore in that area? If you do that, you're going to perform well. Steve, thanks for sharing your story and giving us your time. Really grateful. Um, stay well and wishing you all the very best with uh, all the uh, pulls at the slot machine coming up for you. <laughs> thanks so much. Really enjoyed this conversation, guys. You guys are doing great work, so keep it up. Cheers, thanks Steve. very much, Steve. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.